Today we'll be reading from chapter 8 and 9 in Revelation. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and held it at on the earth. There came pearls of thunder, rumbling flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hell and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all green grasses burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of all living creatures in the sea died, a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of all rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by another three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The, sky, the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss and out of the smoke locusts came down from the earth, came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horse prepared of prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron 
and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers, like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over the angel of the abyss, whose, known, whose name is Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thank you, Noah and Shannon. Uh, well, we read a passage like that and we don't know what to make of it, do we? But that's not so strange when you think about it. We look at the world around us and we don't know what to make of it. In the last year, we have had tropical cyclones Freddie and Gabriel hitting Australia and New Zealand. There was that devastating earthquake in Turkey, Syria. There's been flooding in Brazil and Pakistan, to the extent that one third of Pakistan was underwater. There've been drought and famine in Ethiopia. And we have had, of course, uh, although we're blind to it, Australia's deadliest national disaster, COVID. Uh, more 7,000 killed, more, more killed than uh, from the Spanish flu at the end of the First World War. And uh, when you look at tallies, this is a mild year compared to the two previously, where we had ravages of fire and flood. Have you ever wondered what on earth God is doing that the world is in such a chaotic mess? Um, to those natural disasters, of course, we could add what we see and hear, if you've got your ears attuned, that Christians around the world are going through tremendous persecution. So for example, just on Thursday, on the webpage for Barnabas Aid, this was their prayer point. Clement and Christiana Ukator and their younger daughter Duyum, age 17, were killed in a raid on their family farm in Benue State, Nigeria, by suspected Fulani extremists. The older daughter of this Christian family, who is named Blessing, survived but suffered multiple machete wounds. 
please pray that blessing age 20, who at the time of writing was in a serious condition in hospital, will make a full recovery. What is God doing in the world that our world suffers so much chaos and mess, Christians included? Revelation 8 to 11 answers this question. We've just had chapters eight and nine read out. Reading all four would have taken too long. But if you've got your Bibles open or the passage uh, on your app on your phone, please bring it up. You'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflet. Revelation 8 to 11 answers this question and it does so by pictures given in a vision. Pictures which do describe ultimate reality, what's true from our world from a heavenly point of view. But we have to remember it's a vision, it's more like a dream in style than a documentary. So when, for example, in later chapter, in sorry, chapters 10 and 11, we read of a fire-breathing olive tree, we're not literally to expect to see out there a fire-breathing olive tree. It represents something else, something real, but reality described in a vision. It's more Picasso than Pentax, more impressionist than realist, although it is describing reality. Jesus gives this vision to his church, chapters two and three, which begins with the Lamb of God and the Lord on the throne in chapters four and five. There is someone on the throne, our Lord and our Savior. He is on the throne in all of this. And then the Lamb of God puts into effect God's plan for human history as he is found worthy to open up the scroll to bring in finally peace and the kingdom of God. But as he opens each of the seven seals, difficulties um, come out, uh, which we covered two weeks ago in chapters six to seven. By the time we get to the end of chapter seven, six seals have been opened. And then there's the wonderful news that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that wonderful? But the opening of the seventh seal demands attention because with the opening of that seal, all the sounds of praises of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the sound of the worship of the hundreds of thousands of angels as far as the eye can see, the sound of singing and the great, of the great multitude standing before the throne with their palm branches. With the opening of the seventh seal, all that sound with all its roar and its song and its music suddenly stops. There is silence in heaven for half an hour. Now we just had silence for 10 seconds. But that made us sit up and take note. Well after all the noise of millions of voices in heaven, there is silence for half an hour. Meaning we need to sit up and take note of what's next. Seven angels stand before God and they are given seven trumpets. Now trumpets, of course, you expect to be blown. Will they announce good news? We hope so because verse three, now there's another angel standing at the altar and he's given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. So as the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rise up from the altar before God's throne, we think 
Now God's going to answer our prayers. And that'll be great, won't it? Well, verse five, I want you to see, in direct response to those prayers, as a direct answer to them, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and then hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. The judgment of God poured out on the earth in answer to the prayers of the saints. The seven angels blowing their seven trumpets. What is God doing in the world that our world is in so much chaos? Here's an answer we didn't expect. He's answering our prayers. We never realized prayer was so dangerous. But, as we'll see, there's method in the madness, there's control in the chaos, there's purpose in the pandemonium. And here it is. Thank you. Chapter eight, God is judging the world so that chapter nine, people will repent when chapter 10, they hear the gospel, chapter 11, through the church's witness to Christ before the great day of judgment. That's the main message of these chapters. Don't despair if you haven't swallowed all of that. The message builds as the trumpets are blown and hang on to your hats because here they come. When the first angel sounds his trumpet, verse seven, there comes hail and fire mixed with blood hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth is burnt up along with a third of the trees and a third of the green grass. This isn't the final judgment. Most is spared. But there is still judgment that falls. The second angel sounds his trumpet, verse eight, and a huge blazing mountain is thrown into the sea, turning a third of the sea to blood and destroying a third of all that is in it or on the sea. The third angel sounds his trumpet in verse nine, and a great star blazing like a torch falls on a third of the rivers and the springs of water, ruining a third of the water so that many people die. As each of these judgments comes, the capacity for the... For, uh, human beings to feed themselves is being eroded, eroded, eroded. The fourth angel sounds his trumpet and if things hadn't got bad enough, a third of the sun, moon and stars are struck, this is cosmic, so that a third of them turn dark, leaving our world deprived of a third of its light. What is being described here in picture form is God's judgment on the natural world. From the perspective of heaven, natural disasters which we see and experience now are none other than God's judgment on the world. Now, uh, let me just insert something because on the way in someone asked me about this and they said, I find this difficult to accept. Um, If you look at the Bible's overall storyline, we are not in Eden and we're not in heaven. We are outside of Eden and heaven hasn't come, we are in a time and a world that is under the curse of God, where we suffer God's judgment. So this accords with the broad arc of the Bible's story. You go to somewhere like Romans chapter one, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed, current, uh, present tense, is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You go to somewhere like Luke 13 where Jesus is asked about a random disaster that happened when a tower in the town of Siloam falls and squashes people flat. Were these people more guilty than the others that they came under, you know, they died in this way? Jesus says, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, here's the message from disasters. It's a warning sign. It's a a temporary warning given to others, the survivors. 
Okay. This is God's judgment on the natural world. Now, put up your hand if you've lived through a natural disaster. If you've... Okay. We're pretty safe in South Australia, right? Uh, we, Norella and I never thought we would live through this until we did. 1994, 95, driving through the flames and the fire, the bushfires that just burnt the whole coast and Sydney. Um, it's pretty terrifying living through flood or cyclone. Um, Trumpets 1 to 4 tell us that the reason why our world is in chaos is because God is judging it. It's not the final judgment, only one third of things are destroyed. God's judgment experience now is only partial, but it's still God's judgment. At present, God is holding off final judgment. Why? Because he's showing mercy. It's a severe mercy. One third is destroyed, but it's mercy nonetheless because two thirds is spared. Now that begs a question in our minds. What is God doing? What is his purpose in doing this? I mean, why not suspend all judgment until the final day of judgment or why not bring that day forward instead of doing both? Well, the next point, God is judging the world now so that people will repent because it's people whom God is really targeting. Trumpets one to four sound a judgment from the natural world of trees and grass and water and the sun and the moon. But after those trumpets, John looks up and sees a flying eagle giving a warning. He cries out in a loud voice, woe, 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 to, who to? To the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. It's the inhabitants of the earth whom God has in his sights with the next three trumpets. Which inhabitants of the earth? Well, first up, people who aren't Christians. Trumpet four, trumpet five, sorry. When the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, this was scary, wasn't it? The abyss is opened. That place where Jesus sent the demons, it's opened. The sky turns dark from the smoke pouring out of it. And out of the abyss comes something nightmarish. Hordes of locusts with power like that of scorpions. Their harm is not to be directed against the vegetation, which is what normal locusts target, but this time against people. Specifically, verse four, those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who are not marked out as God's children, God's people. The nature of the judgment, verse five, is torture, or verse six, torment, and if this judgment is being meted out now or at some point before the end in the future, because this isn't the final judgment that's coming, then what is this talking about? Well, here's my best guess, but I might be wrong, <laughs> okay? It may be the spiritual torture that unbelievers go through Described from a heavenly perspective, the terror of facing death without God, the spiritual slavery of living for greed which consumes you and it's bottomless, the guilt and shame of carrying sins unforgiven, undealt with. It's the lot of every person who doesn't accept the gospel and living it is hellish. In verse six we read, that they'd sooner die but they're not able to. 
I mean, we'd rather die than be tortured in pain by the locusts described here. They're armor-plated and dressed for battle, wearing golden crowns with human faces, women's hair, lion teeth, tails like scorpions. This is hellish, isn't it? He's saying it's terrifying to live as a non-Christian, spiritually, I think. Now, do we believe that when we look at the lives of people who aren't yet Christians or, or who have rejected the gospel? Because sometimes it's very tempting, if you have accepted the gospel, to believe the opposite. Um, and yet if we step back for a moment and ask, why is this the most terrifying vision so far given by Jesus to Christians about the judgment that falls on unbelievers, right? The answer must be that Jesus wants his church to know that non-Christians already or will experience judgment in their life which comes from the pit of hell. And I say that because in verse 11, the king of the locusts is described as the angel of the abyss. In other words, he's the ruler of the underworld. His name is the destroyer. It couldn't be clearer. To be a non-Christian is to have Satan as your ruler. And far from this being pleasant, you know, I'll just flip a few snags on the barbie with the devil. His mandate is torture and torment, which is an awful judgment. And God wants Christian people to see this plainly. When you think about the recipients of this revelation, the persecuted and weak church at Philadelphia, it's strangely heartening for them to hear this, given what they've gone through. Not that we're like that church, of course. If anything, we're more like the worldly churches of Pergamum or Thyatira. And if we, we feel the pull towards non-Christian lifestyles, we ought to heed chapter 9, verse 12, whilst the first woe is past, two more are yet to come. Are you ready? It gets more intense. Trumpet 6. When that sounds, judgment is leveled against all people, Christian and non-Christian. In verse 15, four angels are released to kill one-third of all humankind. The angels are accompanied by a galloping cavalry of 200 million horses with heads like lions and who breathe out fire and smoke and sulfur with tails like snakes who inflict plagues of fire and smoke and sulfur on humanity. This judgment kills people. And it's frightening. Um, in 1995, Narelle and I climbed an active volcano, Mount Bromo in Java in Indonesia. I remember what it was like just reaching the rim of the volcano. Uh, you could hear the roar of the flames. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this is judgment material. And then I remember standing at the top and just being overwhelmed by this very strong smell of sulfur. I was hearing the roar of the fl flames, I saw the flames, and there were yellow plumes of sulfur, and then I knew it was judgment material. One week later, we made a point of traveling to the largest volcano in Indonesia, Mount Merapi. We could only walk around its base. Uh, we didn't have time to do the eight-hour climb to the top. We had something to eat at the little village down there and a lady cooked us a chicken satay. We paid for it. Uh, two days later as we flew out to Perth, we met someone who'd done the climb 
And she said, at the top, you could see boulders being thrown around like they were pebbles. Five days after we had climbed it, we were in Perth, and you can only imagine the horror we felt as we watched on television footage of Mount Merapi exploding. Five days later. The forest that we had walked in was completely decimated. So was the village we had been to. And so would have been the lady who cooked us our chicken skewers. Whether it's the chaos wrought by volcanoes or floods or famines or mudslides or fires or earthquakes or pandemics or the spiritual torment caused by Satan itself, our world is in chaos because it is under the judgment of God. Now, why? Why? Look at chapter 9, verse 20. After six trumpets of judgment, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. The reason, the purpose of God placing this world under judgment now is so that people would wake up to themselves and repent of the works of their hands, that they will stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. They need to repent of their murders, their, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, their thefts. It says it, God calls all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, because both are subject to the experience of God's judgment now. God is calling all people, and therefore he's calling us today, now, to repent. That is to stop, to stop sinning. It uses the word, stop. And to this end, he directs the judge, his judgment on the world to shake us out of our complacency, our complacency about our idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is to give our hearts or our, our lives our devotion to anything or anyone else that is not God. But we are so inured against this, we take to it like a duck to water. And so all of us need to constantly hear the warning, don't we? Idolatry, um, it's an issue. I mean, it really is. This is why natural disasters happen. It robs the Lord of the worship that's rightly due to him as creator. And more than that, by captivating our hearts and redirecting our worship from the one who made us, in whom we find perfect freedom, by blinding us to that and captivating our hearts, it reduces us, as those made in the image of God, to worship him. It degrades us, it diminishes us, because guess what? You become what you worship. You worship the Lord, you'll become like him. If you give your heart to worshiping the accumulation of wealth, you'll start thinking that money matters more than people. And your investment returns really matter in your heart more than the Lord. Has that happened to you? God calls you to repent. That is idolatrous. That is defrauding the Lord of worship that we owe him. I'm preaching to myself here, you know, as well as you. If you worship sex and people become tools for your own gratification rather than people who are made in the image of God who carry the dignity 
of being those people and you will start treating people as just objects. Christians can do that. Christians can do that in body with people we're not married to. Christians can do that in mind with those that we see and lust after. Did you know that God judges the world so that people wouldn't do that? God judges the world so that people would not be sexually immoral. We live in a culture which is so perverse and degraded that it has hardened our hearts against the horror of this. We have become diminished. We can't pretend it doesn't matter, that it does no harm. Jesus calls it out as adultery, but when you think about it, it's also coveting, it's also stealing, and it's also, as we read here, idolatry. It is a multi-function sin. We can't pretend that nobody knows and that nobody sees. Jesus knows and Jesus sees because you remember Jesus' words to the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. Some had followed false teachers into committing sexual sin. Jesus gives them time to repent and to those that don't, he says, I will strike them dead and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. So the great truth of chapters eight and nine is that God judges the world so that people would repent. The great tragedy of chapters eight and nine is that judgment alone is not enough to make us repent. Look at chapter nine, verse 20. After six trumpets of judgment, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. We are so hardened and sin is so deceptive that no amount of natural disasters or spiritual torment will make someone turn to God. Well, if they won't make someone turn to God, what will? The word of God will, the gospel will. In chapter 10, John sees a mighty angel who is holding, as Simon said, a little scroll with a message on it. And the way the scene is described, the angel looks like Jesus himself about to come in final judgment. This is an awesome figure. And yet Jesus tells John to go and take the scroll from the angel. John takes the little scroll and then the angel tells John to eat it and that when he eats it, it will taste sweet like honey in his mouth but will turn his stomach sour. He eats it. Like the angel says, this message that he eats is bittersweet. And then he is told you must prophesy again about many peoples, languages, nations, and kings. Thus far in the vision, we are on the threshold of Judgment Day between chapters six and trumpets six and seven. This is where we stand today. And the only hope of people repenting is by hearing the bittersweet word of God, the condemning but the saving message of the gospel. It is a bitter message because it condemns. I mean, you have to take God seriously when you hear the gospel. There is a God to whom we're accountable. And what we do matters. You have to take your sin seriously. It is an offense against God. And we have to take judgment seriously. Judgment will come on us because of our sin. It is a bitter message. But it is also, at the same time, a sweet message the gospel speaks to us of being saved from judgment, of being reconciled back to your creator 
because of the lamb who's on the throne who was slain, who with his blood purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation to be holy and to be priests before him. The gospel, in other words, speaks of restoration, of God washing us clean of our sin, of having us stand, not shrink, not cower, but stand before him. Christ makes us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. The gospel speaks of a new world, of new heavens and new earth, of the, hung, the end of hunger and thirst, with the lamb who is at the center of the throne being our shepherd, who will lead us to springs of living water where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Friends, when someone experiences the judgment of God and then it's made sense of through the gospel message being explained, and then they realize, oh, I hadn't realized before, now I see, I am naturally under the judgment of God, but Jesus has come you know, to forge a way out. It's only then can someone come to God in repentance. Now that would be a good place to shut our Bibles today, wouldn't it? At the end of chapter 10, but there's one more trumpet and one more chapter to remind us everything is not rosy yet. The church must witness to Christ, but yet when judgment day arrives, it will be rosy, and that will be good news. So in the first half of chapter 11, we see that the way that the world is to hear the gospel is through us, through the church, which must witness to Christ. Every member is safe within God's eternal plan. John is told to count them, described here as the people of God in the temple of God. The church is required to witness to Christ. In verse three, we're told that two witnesses will be given power to prophesy, just as John was to prophesy at the end of chapter 10 with the bittersweet news of the gospel. These witnesses, I think, are the church because they are also lampstands, and in chapter one, verse 20, we read that the lampstands are the churches. Now, they could be two future figures, who are just very prominent witnesses, but they will say only that which the rest of the church has already been saying. So I'm not sure if they're specific figures or representative, but they are in accordance with the church's witness. They, we know that they will be opposed by people, having to prophesy for the same length of time that the church will be opposed by the Gentiles in verse two. We know that the witness will be powerful, with similar impact as of Moses or Elijah. And in all these respects, the church must witness to Christ, but the witness goes deeper still in terms of not just the content of what we're saying, but our experience. Because just as Christ was destroyed, and just as his death was gloated over before he rose again, so also will be the experience of Christ's people, the witnesses. In verse seven, a beast comes up from the abyss, the beast we know as Satan, who will attack the witnesses and kill them. In verse nine, people from every tribe and language and people and nation will gloat over their death and will celebrate because the witness had tormented them with their witness. And people from around the world will give each other presents because the church's witness has been silenced. It's kind of like an evil, perverse Christmas day, isn't it? Hooray, hooray. Here's some presents to celebrate that Christ's witnesses are dead. 
But then we're told after three and a half days, the breath of life will enter them and they will stand up before being raised up to heaven in a cloud. Very similar, isn't it, to what Jesus himself went through. So Jesus and his witnesses are identified not just in the content of their message, but also in their shared experience. It's what Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, wasn't it? Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. And that is in fact what happens when the last trumpet is blown. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, loud voices peal out from heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. There you go, all opposition has now been overthrown. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. How so? Well, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Joy, because judgment day has arrived. Um, it may not have occurred to you that this will be a great moment for you if you are one of Christ's people. Because regardless of what we think now about that day, on that day we're told here we will actually worship God because of his judgment. It says it that we will. Because finally we will, we will see things from heaven's perspective. What's your perspective now on the judgment of God? God is judging the world now so that people will repent by hearing the bittersweet gospel through the witness of the church before the final great day. Well, in all of this, in these trumpets, God has given us confidence amidst the chaos. Let me just finish with three things. First of all, when we live through the judgment of God now, we ought to repent of our sins and know that that's what God's urging us to do and urging others to do, but only through the proclamation of the bittersweet gospel. Now, when we share the gospel, we have to include both parts. If you only include the sweet part and say, Jesus loves you. He died for you to be forgiven. If that's all you say, you rob that of content because why do you need to be forgiven? Why would it matter that God love you? I mean, isn't that just automatic? People will think it is. You actually diminish the sweetness if you don't include the sour. Okay, and in the end, by diminishing the sweetness, you give a message that, frankly, is bland and tasteless. And who wants to swallow something like that? Which means, of course, we have to find ways to talk to people about the judgment of God. Um, finally, we must expect that as we witness to Christ in our words, we will witness to Christ in our experience too. 
there will be attack by Satan. For some people, some Christians in the world, there will be death. But after that, there will be resurrection. There will be glory. And that will be a great day. Father, as we swallow this and try and digest it, which is such, such a difficult but glorious but hard message, give us ears to hear. Give us soft hearts. And Father, have mercy on us. And if any of us are toying with sin we know we should be leaving behind, we confess it to you now and we pray for strength from you because we do not have it in ourselves to leave it behind because it is not honoring to you and we want to live for you, the one who died to secure us life and who is bringing the world to that point. In Jesus' name, amen.